Welcome to the show. In this one, I talk to snow machiner Dane Ferguson. Dane started sledding in 2003 and almost immediately began hitting jumps before he even really knew how to ride. He would double up the mountain with filmers and then they would go back down to retrieve a snow machine for him. Once he and his snow machine were reunited, all he had to do was point it at the jump and hit the throttle. He's a tenacious guy though. He's a quick, calculated learner so it wasn't long before he was riding backcountry and hitting kickers like a pro. Watch any of his parts in Turning in Hardcore or Slednecks, and you'll see the type of rider he is. He goes huge, he tries new tricks, and he's not afraid to fall. He says that, at a certain point, he realized that the more time you can spend in the air, the more time you have to register what's going on and make corrections before you hit the ground. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribed to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Also, you can now get crude apparel and merchandise at Tee Public, From t-shirts to hoodies to stickers and even baby onesies. Just go to the crude Instagram and click the link in the bio. Okay, back to Dane Ferguson. In 2021, his uncle was strong-armed into signing a piece of paper that gave the Taliban permission to marry off his daughters. So five days before the wedding, Dane found himself helping his cousins escape from Afghanistan. Then when Russia invaded Ukraine, Dane got a call from a guy who had helped coordinate resources to get his cousins out of Afghanistan. He said that women and children were disappearing, possibly to human trafficking or possibly disorganized evacuations. So Dane made an easy decision. He would go to Ukraine and he would help safely evacuate those women and children who were in impossible situations just like his cousins. So here he is, Dane Ferguson. (laughs) This red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. You're back in Alaska right now, right? I am for a couple more days. And you do a lot of traveling, and we'll get into that here in a bit. But when you're back home in Anchorage, 
do you have any creature comforts like a favorite restaurant or a favorite bar that you go to while you're back? Yeah, I think in Eagle River, it would be Corks and Hops. Pretty nice restaurant in Eagle River. Uh, that's that's kind of the favorite one to hit. Corks and Hops. I don't think I've ever heard of it. Uh, it's it's kind of like the secret little gym. Like, I probably shouldn't promote it because it's really <laughs> nice that we can get a table there all the time. Yeah. But uh, the word's starting to get out, and it's starting to get more and more full, and we're starting to have to make reservations for it. So it's uh, I think it's better than the Club Paris or uh, any of the – any of the downtown spots in Anchorage. Oh, so it's like a steak joint. Uh, it's it's kind of like a, a classy, fancy place. I don't we don't bring the kids. <laughs> they they have they have a, a changing menu, uh, but everything's good. Even their mac and cheese is too fancy for my kids. Okay, okay. Yeah, so yeah, it's a, it's a nice place. Well, what do you usually get there? Um, I actually usually either get whatever kind of steak special thing they got going on, or I get the mac and cheese with bacon or chicken in it. it it's, yeah, it's good stuff. You know, I, uh, I grew up eating steak, um, and you know, hunting, going hunting with my dad on Montague Island. And, um, you know, so I'm a, I'm a big meat eater and it wasn't till I was probably like in my late twenties or early thirties that I realized that you have to order it medium rare. I agree. I definitely agree with that. Well, so funny is my wife actually is really good at cooking steaks and barbecuing. So this is one of the rare places where I'll actually order steak when we go out to eat because normally it's not worth it in comparison to how she cooks. But uh, they, they put some extra sauces on it and yeah, the mashed potatoes seem better than any mashed potatoes that we get at home. And so it's the one rare place where we order steak when we go out. I am a, a big sauce person too. I'm usually like brown sauce, but I can do some white sauces on steak. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, this is actually one of the only places where we do sauce on the steak. Normally at home, it's just a uh, pepper and salt or whatever combination my wife does. I'm not sure. For sure. You know, uh, this took me a while to, to realize. Um, and I think it's just a matter of getting older and more like life experience, but you know, when you put sauces on a steak, that means that the steak, it needs something else more than what the, the cook already did to it, you know? So, so it's kind of, um, it's always best to have a steak and not have to put something on it. Right. Well, yeah, no, I think that's, I would say that's how my wife cooks a steak, like perfect, juicy, you know, flavored good. Mm -hmm. But this is still one of those rare places where even without the sauce, their steak would be perfect, but the sauce just makes it extra good. Dang, I'm gonna have to try this place out. Yeah, I'm definitely talking it up, but it will not let you down. I promise. <laughs> All right, right on, man. <laughs> okay, so I reached out to you a few weeks back, and you had just landed in Boston. You were headed to New York, and then to Florida, and then back to the Ukraine. Can you explain what you've been doing in Ukraine? Well, uh, so all of that was basically a reconnaissance trip for the trip that we are leaving for in a couple of days. But what we're doing in Ukraine is humanitarian aid work um, without chasing the squirrel too far, going off on a tangent. Um, I formed a, a Lions Club, which is a nonprofit organization to get kids into racing. But this organization is also has clubs all over the world. It's an international organization. And uh, so <clears throat> Having said that, and combined with my uh, 
history of doing dangerous things as safe as possible, i.e. being freestyle and snowmobiling, um, there's women and children that are in bad places and they need uh, help getting further to the West. And then there's medical supplies and food that are in the West that need to get to people in the East. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we do. We try to uh, safely sneak in and uh, not sneak in because we actually uh, have all the MOAs and everything with the Ukrainian government. And so they tell us which people they want us to pick up and where they would like us to deliver them to. So um, not really sneak in isn't really the right term, but uh, try to get in without incident and get out without incident and repeat the process as many times as necessary. And where are these places of safety that you're bringing these people to? Uh, the, the end destinations is going to be Poland and Romania or um, uh, settlement. I don't, we don't like saying refugee centers, but there's about six and a half million displaced people inside Ukraine. So um, just getting them further west away from the action uh, to locations that minimize their chances of getting hurt. Mm -hmm. And can you tell me what taking these people to a place of safety looks like? Yeah, well, <clears throat> so when we show up, you know, we'll have medical supplies and we'll deliver those. Um, a lot of the moms from our local snowcross group here make these things called morale packs for the kids. They have like coloring books, little pieces of candy, crayons and stuff like that because it is a long drive going back. Um, but on the on on the majority, 99.9% .9 of the time, it's just uh, bus driving, little daycare. A little keeping kids entertained and keeping people calm and safe and giving them water and food mm -hmm. uh, so uh, ideally we want it to be as boring as possible well you know because if it's exciting then that means there might be danger but yeah we, we just try uh, we just basically try to make people feel as comfortable as possible and uh, get them to where we're told to take them yeah and you're doing all of this through your chapter of Lions Club International, like you were saying, and that's called Alaska State Snow X Lions Club, correct? Yes, sir. And so it's basically donations from uh, mostly friends and family and uh, supporters of our club that have that donate. And uh, so on this next trip, I got one experienced trauma medic, EMT guy out of Oregon. I got two retired National Guard guys. Uh, out of Alaska here and then I got two uh, mechanics that can also drive buses so um, now again we don't carry weapons we just carry safety equipment we wear our bright yellow the same safety vests that we wear on the track for flagging mm -hmm. uh, that's what we wear uh, so everybody knows who we are and uh, yeah uh, that's just what we do just find people that are willing to help out that aren't afraid and if things get a little energetic or chaotic that we can all just stay calm and perform the task. And you just said that you're wearing the same safety vests as you do during these snow X events. Right. Basically bright yellow safety vests. Um, I mean, uh, we'll trade in. So on a snow cross track, you should always, in general, you should, when the big sleds are going, you should have a tech vest with a bright yellow day glow vest over top that has our club insignia on the back. 
um, the the safe the chest protectors we wear underneath are a little bit more hardcore than uh, your regular snow machine chest protector but mm -hmm. that's basically the same thing we're wearing a chest protector we wear a helmet we wear a bright yellow vest and how close are you to like action in ukraine uh you ideally not very close in, in an ideal world uh there will be humanitarian corridors corridors uh set up that everybody will respect the uh local there will be some depending on where, if it's local national police or national military or the territorial defense somebody that we will coordinate with will um make sure uh do their best to make sure that uh, we meet them at a location that minimizes any risk mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how do you find these people who get involved like the medic you mentioned earlier word of mouth um so uh for a couple before a couple days ago um we there was a lot more volunteers at our disposal um but a new rule came down with people that have a certain uh, level of security clearance can no longer uh, participate in Ukraine itself. They have to stay out in like Poland and Romania. Mm -hmm. So when I was over there, they made that rule and the, the day before we had to go into Ukraine. So I ended up taking all the gear of four guys into Ukraine myself, just hitchhiking in to knock out the three tasks that we had to do. Um, while one of the guys I was supposed to be meeting up with, we had to walk out of country. And so um, so I had to come back and put a new team together, but basically it's word of mouth. Um, it's, there's a, there's a lot of pe eligible people and people that have experience in, uh, high energy situations or whatever. Um, there's a lot of people that want to help. It's just a matter of them finding us or us finding them. Just a second ago, you said you hitchhiked into Ukraine. What did that look like? Well, imagine a 155 pound guy with four of those giant green military duffel bags i had one on my and each weighed each one weighed about 49 to 50 pounds because of the airline rules and uh so i had one on my back one on my chest one on each hand plus i had my 72 hour bag strapped to the to the duffel bag on my back and uh it was pretty i thought i was gonna walk in but after going like not very far i'd go about 50 yards and have to set it down catch my breath then pick well not the one off my back but uh set down the other ones catch my breath and pick it up and go again and uh i didn't even get all the way up to the border when i decided you know what i'm a hitchhike and uh yeah. so i saw two young guys come up and uh flagged them down uh they happened to be uh some deaf guys from another nonprofit organization that was going in to help um with the deaf children at the deaf orphanage and uh so uh, that that turned into a, a quite an ordeal of uh, having deaf people from another culture and then us riding together and then trying to get get through the checkpoint. Uh, it took a minute. Uh, then I finally uh, there was a little bit of confusion, but I finally made it through. Long story short, once uh, I explained to the border guards who I was and what I was up to, they went and got like one of their head head guys that worked there and they wanted to get me a ride all the way to kiev but i wasn't actually going to kiev and uh nonetheless uh after about an hour and a half of confusion they got me a ride to where i needed to go 
and then I split from their guys and then continued on with what I had to do. You know, I'm, I'm curious, like what's going through your mind, you know, when you're doing something like hitchhiking into Ukraine or you are, I mean, just from that story you told, it sounds almost like a, a solo mission at this point to, to bring these supplies to a destination. Like when you're on this solo mission, what's going through your mind? Well, kind of on the, on that trip was mostly about like laying groundwork to prepare for the, the later trips. And, uh, and so basically it's, uh, what's I, nothing other than I need to, I need to, first off, I need to carry this 220 pounds for two miles to get through the border or whatever it is, you know, just mm -hmm. focus on the task at hand. And then when I realized I was getting hung up at the border and I was burning daylight, it was, how do I get out of this situation and get moving? And, uh, then once I get moving, how do I ditch the guy that they just assigned to me so I can break free and go to my other guys? And then, uh, just whatever it takes. I, I, not, I guess nothing's really going through my mind other than I have an objective to do and, uh, I got to find creative ways to make it happen without, without causing any problems. Uh, cause the worst thing that we could do as uh, humanitarian aid people over there and especially as Americans is, um, do something wrong. There's, there's rules that we have to follow. And, uh, so you just got to make sure that you do everything you can to achieve the objective without breaking any rules. What rules are going through your mind? Like I can't do this. I can't do this. Um, uh, it just de depends on what situation you're in, but uh, mostly just making sure that you're representing yourself properly mm -hmm. and uh, not trying to play the role of somebody else. Or, uh, yeah, that's just, I mean, uh, you know, no matter how, how, no matter how scary things get or whatever happens, you know, we are humanitarian aid workers. We, uh, we're not, you know, uh, things that we might be able to do to defend ourselves here at home don't apply over there to humanitarian aid worker. Mm -hmm. And so you just got to remember that you're an American and what you do reflects on America, how you, how you carry yourself, uh, whether, you know, I, I mean, here, here in America, if I saw, you see somebody doing something, you might be able to run over and act in a certain manner and kind of get away with it, you know, uh, mm -hmm. there you're representing America and you're representing humanitarian aid organizations in general. So if you do something out of line, that might have a negative impact on other organizations. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so you're just trying to tiptoe the rules that, you know, that are set forth for us, I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> You know, I wonder if you can help me understand how your chapter, you know, this local snow machine club got involved in all this. Oh, this is a sticky one. Um, so <clears throat> let's rewind back before the Russians invaded Afghanistan. Uh, my uncle saw the writing on the wall. He was an uh, Afghan national and he made his way to America and he met my aunt. Uh, they... Uh, had my cousin and uh, long 
long time has passed. My aunt has since passed away. He is, America invaded Afghanistan. At that point in time, he felt it was safe to go home and start a new family. Uh, his oldest daughter's 14. And uh, during the withdrawal of Afghanistan, uh, they shut the banks down and they, uh, I'm just gonna skip through a bunch of stuff right here. But uh, long story short, there wasn't any military resources available. Triple Canopy wasn't available to hire. I've done a lot of volunteer work with different veteran organizations over the years. And um, I, I didn't, I started, I panicked. And I knew that, I knew that through my snow machine days, I knew a lot of people. I visited Afghanistan back in 2009, I think, or maybe 10. Uh, so anyways, I panicked and I was like, well, hey, let's just call everybody we know and see what happens. And uh, at some point in time, the Taliban went by my uncle's house, took him down to whatever type police station thing, smacked him around a little bit and uh, made him sign a piece of paper. So he called me up with a, a desperate tone and uh, had this piece of paper saying that they were going to marry my two oldest cousins off to some Taliban people at a different tribe. So uh, and we had like five days, I think, uh, until the, until the weddings were going to happen. And then, uh, abracadabra, they made it into Abbey Gate four hours before the bomb went off. And, uh, now they're safely living here in America and the kids are going to school and, uh, it's a, it's a good deal. So, uh, then the Ukraine thing happened and, uh, some people called me, uh, Actually, it was one of Murkowski's old campaign aides called me. Anyways, there was some family here in town that had... Uh, it, it was, that was the first call. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I got multiple calls of people with family here. They had family over there. And they were wondering if I could help get them out. And I didn't, at the time, know anybody. I wasn't really keeping my ear to the ground. But uh, one of these guys that helped me out that I never caught the name of during the Afghan thing... Uh, he called me from his block number or whatever and started talking to me about uh, orphans and women and children and uh, how people had been disappearing, um, possibly to human trafficking or possibly just to um, disorganized evacuations. Uh, so that's pretty much what made me get up and decide that uh, it's um, that I, I was going to I was going to join. I was going to join up. I was going to help out. Because, uh, you know, there's a bunch of other little kids just like my cousins. And uh, so when I went and picked my cousins up from Fort McCoy, like the looks on their little faces and the joy of them just running around the uh, gas station parking lots. And like I took them to Walmart and like we took those little shopping, electric shopping carts and like, yeah. we destroyed that place. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it pretty much looked like a... a pbs version of jackass uh, <laughs> but we had fun you know and so yeah when when the, when the guy called me up and started talking about orphans and children and single mothers and stuff like that that's when i decided so it was like well here's the other thing i, I just happened to be in a position where uh i had talked to a alaska oh what the heck's it called action sports alaska is a, the group i've been working with and i talked them into getting some airbags and so this season was going to be the season where 
I wanted to do double back. I wanted to land the double backflip to the airbag. I wanted to do the front flip to the airbag. I had ideas about building like quarter pipe ramps so that we could do that kind of turning a hardcore inverted whip, mm-hmm. you know, to a, a mobile landing, but an airbag landing. I wanted to do my alley-oop flip that I did at X Games. I dedicated to Kristoff. I wanted to bring these, these four tricks to a crowd on a regular basis, not just kind of one-off stunt stuff. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I'd been saving my money and, uh, my family, my wife, my kids, myself, we would all mentally prepared for the worst case scenarios. You know, uh, people have died and people have gotten seriously hurt, you know, performing snowmobile tricks. And so I'd been saving up money, expecting to waste money on snowmobiles, expecting to go to the hospital and expecting not to be able to work. So when I got the call about the women and children, I just uh, didn't answer the sponsors, the sponsors phone calls for a couple of weeks. Cause I just, okay. I actually went and talked to some of the other riders before I actually talked to the sponsor to tell them that I wasn't going to be riding. And, uh, I think he was like a little confused, like how come you're not out here? What's going on? But anyways, uh, you know, it, it just, it just saw everything works out, I guess, you know? So I just, uh, you know, if I get hurt over there, it's no different than getting hurt on a sled here. Um, you know, maybe maybe next season we'll pick up where we left off this season with the riding. Um, but for right now, uh, I've already done that. Not saying that I'm not looking forward to getting back to it, but I've already done it. And uh, I think that some things just happen for a reason. Uh, I absolutely have a seriously strong hatred towards people that mistreat women and children. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if I can alleviate some of their targets remove their targets before they have a a chance to harm them then uh that's a lot better than getting high fives or getting facebook likes or whatever small paychecks come from riding snowmobiles and uh i've already toured north america and uh you know i don't think that uh, these snowmobile shows are going to take me any place new in the world uh, than i haven't already been so and then when you also tie in the fact that uh, some of the European riders that I've ridden with over the days, they have friends stuck in Ukraine. So some, some, of the, uh, some of the bags of goods that I was carrying in was specifically for friends of friends that I've met through my snow machine days of traveling. So if you've traveled around the world and you have a passport, it's a small world. And so in some cases, most cases, these are just strangers. Uh, in some cases, they are fellow Lions Club members that we're trying to help. And in some cases, it's friends of friends that I met through my travels in the freestyle world. So, uh, you know, it seems like a big world, but it's a small world. We're all connected, and I just feel like i got to get over there and help out. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you think you have such a hatred toward people who mistreat women and children, you know, outside of the, the obvious fact. And that is that both of those things are just despicable. I mean, is there anything, uh, personal? Is there a personal reason why? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, but we're not going to go into that right now, but ultimately, um, like I was, I just guess I've been raised to where if you're like a, a real man or even a real good person, you're supposed to protect the weak and the vulnerable and protect those who cannot protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's at the bar, at school when you're a kid, uh, whether it's wherever you're at, uh, in general, just protect the vulnerable and the weak and 
help those who can't help themselves. And so this falls right into that. Mm -hmm. So you felt drawn to it. I don't know any other people right now that need our help more. I mean, well, I guess there's still a lot of people in Afghanistan and then there's still a lot of people over in Burma and Mm -hmm. well, anyways, there's a lot of people everywhere that need our help. But, uh, the, these specific people, uh, I don't know if it's, you know, uh, I, I know that, so like with Red Bull Fuel and Fury, we were the first Westerners to perform in the Red Square, Moscow, since before the Cold War. And then I went back to Russia as well. I mean, I were, and uh, I mean, the Ukrainian people, like when it comes to people, they're just people, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, a lot, when we went to Russia, I mean, sometimes we'd go into a restaurant, they'd sit us in the back, they'd call us the N-word and uh, not, not treat us very good. You go right over to the next restaurant or location and you know they're they're just treating people like people and uh so it's a little unfortunate uh, it, uh everything's unfortunate but man the ukrainian people they're just people and if there's people that need our help and uh we have the abilities to help then i just think that we should help and mm -hmm. when you've you know when all of your pastimes and hobbies always involve doing dangerous things as safe as possible um i just think it falls right in line with my mentality and my skill level mm -hmm. yeah i asked that question because i think that it's first off very admirable what you're doing but second off most people i would think despise those things you know being physical and angry toward women and children, but very few would take it upon themselves to go into a war-torn area to help them. Some people sit back and talk a bunch of smack about what they would do off of this or that jump, or like, here's the thing, like, especially from Snow Machine, man, everybody on their way home from Turnigan, between Turnigan and Girdwood, and when they're sitting down in Girdwood reviewing the footage with the beer in their hand, everybody's a badass. <laughs> Going to Turnigan in the morning, and while you're digging the jump, you can see the fucking nerves bundling up. You can see the fear. You can see the excuses. You know, uh, all of a sudden, oh, my, my sled's not insured, or I got to work on Monday, or, well, you know. Uh, so that, that's just, that's, that's, it's just the same to me. Uh, a lot of guys with a beer in their hand at 6 p.m. with turning in behind them or they'll say a lot of things. Ask them at 11 o'clock with turning it in front of them and see what they say. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Yeah, I like how you brought up um, building the jump. You know, that those moments where you're sitting there and you're you're just contemplating the future and you're you're building this thing that can either be uh, this object of triumph or this object of destruction, and you're just you're contemplating what the outcome could be. You know, I think that that that's a really interesting idea. You know, the jump building process. Well, I, I mean, I'll put it to you. The only reason I have a gold medal is because everybody else crashed. Right? Let's that, we'll get that right off the table right now. Um, but when I was training at Fitzpatrick's house to do the double, it was supposed to be, the story was written, me and Levi were going to do the double. It was supposed to be a double flip competition. And uh, I sank my motor in the pond at Fitzpatrick's house because I was 
not being smart. And uh, so I didn't have a sled, and I called over to the, uh, Joe Duncan that runs the event. I said, Joe, i got to quit. And he said, no, Fergie, you can't quit. I was like, well, uh, but I don't have a sled. He said, that doesn't matter. He said, we've been having a problem. We just did this best trick, next, next trick thing at Summer X, and uh, guys are doing dead sailors. And uh, in everybody's defense, it's really hard to come out, warm up early in the day, then get cold, then wait for all the basketball timeouts and then the Sean White interviews, and they're telling you to, hey, fire up your sled, wait, never mind, there's another interview, oh, there's another timeout, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden they say, okay, fire up your sled and go, right? It's really hard to do um, a trick that, that you've never performed uh, in a crowd or maybe that you've never done. It's really hard to do it at that time. So uh, I was, so he, he explained to me what the situation was and they needed one person that was gonna do what they said they were gonna do when they said they were gonna do it. And so even without me having a snowmobile, he wouldn't let me back out of the competition. Mm -hmm. And uh, Luckily, good old Jeff Mullen, super nice kid out of Canada. Uh, he was work, riding for factory Yamaha at the time. I showed up to Electric Mountain Lodge and uh, wasn't riding at all. Anyways, I talked to Jeff. I rode a little bit. He saw that my sled wasn't any good. He made a deal with the Yamaha factory. They let him buy the practice sled so he could loan it to me. And then, uh, so for that weekend, they kind of pretended like I was sponsored by Yamaha for the TV and all that stuff. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, even, uh, even amongst the best riders, you can still kind of tell who the shit talkers are and who's actually legit. And, uh, that's the only reason I have my gold medal is because I'm willing to do whatever I tell you I'm going to do whenever I tell you I'm going to do it. No excuses. Mm -hmm. uh, there's other guys out there that uh, Le Le Levi gave it his best. Um, you know, there's nothing Levi could have done. I wouldn't have gone for a second try myself. But I think the other two guys, I, don't, I mean, both those guys got so much skill that uh, I'm a little surprised that they didn't do it. But again, you take in the getting warm, the getting cold, the timeouts, the fact that you haven't ridden since earlier in the day. And uh, sometimes that those little little things like that sometimes spook the deer and uh so for whatever reason you know i got a gold medal and now i'm off to ukraine <laughs> <laughs> so you know what's always interesting to me about competitors you know that the competitor mentality and i think that every really good competitor that i've ever read about or talk to really understands that you know in the heat of competition where everyone is riding at their best it's anybody's competition you know and you can only really do as best as you can possibly do and you know hope hope the best for the outcome uh yeah i think under a normal circumstance under like a normal uh run you know um i think there's been a lot of X Games competitions where if they would have re-ran the competition an hour later, the uh, the finishing results would have been different. So I definitely agree with that. Um, but best trick is just more of a uh, kind of a stuntman thing. It's just you against your nerves. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there's nobody else out. There's nobody stopping us from what we're attempting to do except for our own mental limitations. 
So, you know, but I, th I think in a, in a normal run format, I think that's correct. In the, in the best trick stuntman format with two attempts to do it, I don't know if that's quite the case. What's it like doing a double backflip on a snow machine? Unfortunately, I've never actually done one on a snow machine, only on a motorcycle. I've done one and a half, and I know that's not cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I've never, uh, yeah, so I was working on it at Fitzpatrick's house on the motorcycle. I busted the sled out, and I was riding around using this pond as kind of a cooling pit before I hit the foam pit, and uh, I don't think I got two or three test jumps into the foam pit when I got some water on my belt and uh messed up the motor in my sled and that was pretty much it for for practicing and training and so uh like i said uh uh i, I actually haven't done a double backflip and that's that's something that does eat at me uh pretty hard uh it's, it's ate at me for a long time uh, along with uh trying the first front flip and we fucking oh shit so you'll bleep all that out right no, you can cuss. <laughs> so uh, the first front flip was, was something that happened out at my house here where we took a big sanding net and, like, draped it up in the trees and over my landing and, like, had it tied off to a couple pickup trucks to pull it tight and mm -hmm. uh, tried sending the, the sled into uh, the front flip off the ramp and just totally destroyed the sled. And At that time, I didn't have a foam pit, didn't have airbags, and uh, I definitely... Uh, couldn't couldn't afford what i was getting myself into but we tried to keep it a secret for a little bit and then the secret finally got out and then frisbee frisbee figured it out and got her done so um which is definitely good for the sport in hindsight knowing that i wasn't that i wasn't able to pull it off i probably should have shared that shared the information earlier of what we were doing to get it to rotate uh so i do kind of feel bad that that didn't get debuted like three years earlier but uh at the same time that's kind of the nature of the beast if you think you got something that nobody else has you kind of want to keep it quiet until you can come up with the funding to get it done mm -hmm. yeah what's it like doing a double backflip on a motorcycle just twice as fun as a normal one <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a little bit nerving obviously you know different bike different ramp different anytime you have a different setup you know um it felt a, more, a lot more like my early years of doing a single flip where it was like it's a little bit more nerving um but once you once you understand the run in and the pull and then uh it just becomes about repetition and trying to dial it in mm -hmm. i'd say i'd say the body positioning is a lot more important uh like me and blaze and maybe a couple of some of the other guys we have kind of a real laid out flip style which slows your rotation down so uh to me the biggest deal was uh trying to adjust my body positioning and my flip style to encourage the faster rotations yeah mm -hmm. okay so knowing that you film for the turnigan hardcore movies back in the day i reached out to sebastian landry to see if he had any questions he'd like me to ask you and he gave me a few <laughs> this will be good <laughs> the first one is what happened to the destroyer uh, i sold the destroyer to ben bowers and i believe that he re-riveted it all back together and got it running um i believe i sold it for like 500 bucks the destroyer all right so the destroyer i believe 
I can't, now I can't remember 100%, but I'm pretty sure the destroyer was a sled that we cobbled together out of completely bent parts. So Harry Brunholzel <laughs> was running a snow cross, and he would let me do my freestyle at his place out in the valley. And uh, I think Amanda Riggs dented a tunnel, so that was kind of it. And then, But basically between the racers that would throw away parts that were like, not very used up by my standards or not by turning hardcore standards and uh, uh most of it came from racer parts and then like just some leftover parts when we would destroy another sled would be destroyed we'd pull a couple a arms off or whatever um so that's that's how the i believe the, the sled that we called destroyer i think that that's how, how it was uh built but either way the destroyer was a sled that we had that um it had a really good motor really good clutching it was tuned great and we would just like other guys would take their panels off their sled put it on this one and then give it a try like if they didn't think they were going to land it or if like we knew that like for the step up you know it took certain gearing and clutching and power to make the step up so for the step up we would bring the destroyer out and then just swap people's panels over so that it looked like it was their sled from a distance okay so this thing was like um like a f to be destroyed it's like community <laughs> sled to be destroyed okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh it, was, it also seemed like like with the power plant and like i don't know man it just it lasted a long time i've bought newer sleds that never lasted as long but this thing just seemed to be lucky oh that's awesome yeah but i think ben bowers ended up with it. to answer your question ben bowers ended up with it and I imagine he probably sold it to somebody before he moved out of town. So we don't know where it is now. We do not. But if somebody bought an old Rev 800 from Ben Bowers, then uh, there's a good chance that they have the destroyer. But Ben Bowers is a really good mechanic, so it probably doesn't look anything like it did. You know, he probably like tin knocked all the dents out of it and riveted it back together and probably like powder coated something. Or you know, It probably looks nothing like when I gave it to him. So if this thing looks nothing like the original destroyer, would would you give it a different name? I I don't think so. I mean you can't rename it. I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean if it's still running, then you know, it's a destroyer. I don't I, yeah. I, I wouldn't give it a new name. I think that name's classic. So another question that Sebastian gave me was pancake or flapjack? Mm. All right. So you're actually, you're kind of creeping into my, my stuff here. Uh, so I, I choose pancake um, uh, <laughs> because uh, flapjack just insinuates that I talk a lot more shit. But uh, pancake more insinuates that I go big and I just always bottom out my suspension. Uh, and I also go with pancake because uh, uh, back in my hockey days, ironically, uh, as a defenseman, if you're gonna like, if we were gonna switch sides and like drop the puck and run a pick, uh, we would run, we would yell pancake to each other. That was our code word, so the other guys on the ice didn't know what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, pancake has also come up recently for other code words that we use in our current work. So I choose pancake, but other people might choose flapjack. Okay. Do you want to know the background behind pancake yeah, and flapjack? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh so uh christoph was twist off because he drank i didn't drink uh but basically i would 
come out with these piece of junk sleds with no suspension and so if you frame if you like still frame it as i'm coming off the jump it's always compressed dragging along and then uh of course on every landing it was just fully fully pancaked out but then after every jump when we'd stop pull our helmets off i would talk hella shit <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was either pancake or flapjack <laughs> so uh yeah that's I, i'm pretty sure uh I mean, I might be wrong, you know what I mean? My perception of what was happening around me might be different than those that were looking at it, but I'm pretty sure that's kind of where the two nicknames came from. Yeah. And what is the best use for Tiger Bomb? <laughs> Fuck, your whole, your whole body head to toe. <laughs> like, don't even care if it gets on your balls, man. Who cares at that point? So, uh, so back in, in the uh, probably three years four years that i was really going hard um so at night in spring i i have ice packs like from hockey you know that you get an injury you ice up and then maybe you take a hot bath ice alternate ice and heat mm -hmm. and so uh at night i would fall asleep with ice packs on i'd wake up uncomfortable my ice packs would be warm i'd go get in a hot bath i bought like a little jacuzzi tub thing just for this for my riding and my injuries but uh i would throw my warm warm packs in the freezer i'd hop in a hot bath soak a little bit and then wake up grab a different set of ice packs out of the freezer put them on my body go back to sleep sometimes two baths a night just to try and make it to the mountain me and christoph would meet up in the morning and he'd have like some swollen jiggly fluids in his knees and i'd have something whatever it is you know and we'd laugh about it <laughs> and then uh even though it wasn't funny but you know what i mean you, that's all you can do like we, yeah. we we set a goal this goal hurts and uh <laughs> but it's a goal that we set and by golly we're gonna do the best we can to achieve it yeah and uh <clears throat> so tiger bomb was just icy hot wasn't good enough tiger bomb i had to use so pretty much yeah as soon as i would leave the house and i would tiger bomb up head to toe and then when I get out of the park, get back down to the parking lot before I got in the car so that my body wouldn't seize up, you know, when you're driving and uh, you have injuries and stuff, they seize up. So it just made everything more comfortable except for the people's noses that were riding with me. And Tiger Bomb comes in those, those small little like glass canisters. How many did you have to buy? <laughs> I don't know. I just was always buying those things. I'd always have, I'd always have at least like three or four of them rattling around in my truck, a couple in my gear bag. But yeah, it's, I've actually found that I guess over in Asia, they got like a higher strength version of Tiger Bomb that they don't sell here, but I never got into importing the good stuff. <laughs> Do you have any lasting injuries? Oh yeah. Like, uh, my knee, the the ACL, MCL, patella tendon, broken femur day uh, haunts me to this day. Like so, if I when I go to jujitsu, I have to show up 15 minutes early just to work my knee, just so that I can sit on the heel. Like because mm -hmm. in jujitsu, you know, there's a lot of you got to sit back with your weight back, and I can't fully sit past my legs, like in between with my butt on the ground. But I can, you know, with like a good 10, 15 minutes of stretching, I can get it where I can at least sit on my heels. Uh, uh, but yeah, I would say my right knee, uh, low mobility, um, uh, diagnosed with TBI, but I don't, I don't notice any problems with that. <laughs> uh, 
<clears throat> people around me might. I don't. I don't really think so. I don't, it's, it's not like the biggest thing. It was just actually a surprise diagnosis when that one came. But most of the bones that just stick out funny, they don't really bother me. Uh, mostly, mostly the knee. Uh, carrying a lot of weight for a long time or trying to run for a long while. Normally, uh, yeah, yeah. So yes, to answer your question, yes, there are long-lasting injuries, but they don't really matter. Like, uh, like they don't stop me from doing anything that I need to do. Mm -hmm. What was the, the day that you just said that haunts you? <laughs> oh, that was dumb. And so if Corey Davis ever recommends something, you should probably listen. I'm just going to tell you, he's a pretty smart kid. He, his risk to reward ratio is very much like a normal humans. Um, but we were at Alaska. I think it was raining. It was warm. The setup was kind of junk. Corey said that we shouldn't ride. I said whatever I said to Corey, and I uh, hopped on my sled. And uh, I was coming up a little a little short. I was going to deck it, and then I was so I wanted to not end up in the puddle of water at the bottom of the landing. So I was going to stomp this landing on the deck, mm -hmm. and uh, I stomped a little early. My right leg went totally straight, so then when I decked it, uh, just everything kind of snapped and blew out. Then I ended up flipping over the handlebars, laying right in that puddle of water I was trying to avoid anyways. So, uh, you know, if Corey says that something doesn't look right, you should probably listen to Corey, but I learned the hard way. You know, Sebastian suggested that if I'm wondering what makes you tick, I should watch both of your parts in Turning in Hardcore 5. And something that was immediately apparent to me was that you like to go really big. You're trying new tricks and you're not afraid to fall. Does that sound about right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, did you say Turning in Hardcore 5? Yeah. Yeah, that was my first year of flipping. Well, for flipping and whipping, like, I figure the, the longer you're in the air, the more time you have to correct things when they go bad. And so, um, like blaze was really dialed with his flips and he could do flips at like 50 feet. But that gave you me as a new, new flipper. Like now I just started riding snowmobiles in like 2003, you know, uh, for the first time ever throwing a leg on one. So I was pretty new to the game. Mm -hmm. a matter of fact, so new that, uh, to get to the Whittier step up for the first couple of years, the filmers would have to ride me up double. Then they'd go back down, get, get my sled or their sleds and drive it up to me. Cause I didn't have the actual riding skills to get to the jumps. But once I got there and you pointed me at it, I was, I was ready to go. <laughs> and uh, so, so from, you know, so if you don't have a lot of experience being upside down sideways or any of these things, the more time that you can spend in the air, the more time it gives you to register what's going on and make corrections before you hit the ground. And the other thing I found too, is that I was in flight school when nine 11 happened. That's kind of why I scooted out of flight school. But, um, I found that jumping really big, like anything over a hundred, anything over 150, maybe 200 feet. When you start getting up into those ranges, it's a lot like doing an engine off landing with your with a plane with a, like a cub or a cessna mm -hmm. and because uh, you only have one shot to come in at it um you want to like pitch your nose down a little bit because you're going to have to hit the throttle to get your track speed up but you don't want but you want your sled at a certain angle to match the terrain 
but you all, you know, so you want your track speed to be at 80 plus miles an hour, but you don't want to hit it so early that you're into a wheelie and then all of a sudden you start cartwheeling. So that was a lot like coming in with your engine off in flight school and then having to flare at just the right moment with no motor power to circle around if you mess up. And so, uh, so for me, once, once I got the hang of how to go off a snowmobile and have my body position in somewhat of the correct manner, uh, elbows up, weight forward, aggressive stance, knees bent, you know, that once I was able to do that, instead of, uh, going off the jump, more like a water skier that's being pulled by my handlebars, you know, that was my problem mm -hmm. in the beginning which always makes you go nose high and causes problems. But anyways, so once I got my riding stance correct and I was able to jump those bigger distances, it quickly correlated to what I'd learned at flight school. And so, um, so yeah, and then in flight school, when you have a problem, altitude's your friend. So the more, the more time you have in the air, the more time you can figure out your problems and make it safer. Wow, so that's, that's why you go so big. That's why I went so big back then. Uh, I'm a little older now, so like I don't honestly, I don't huck like that as much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went out like earlier this year to the 110. We were hitting it in the snow, and they said it's like 130 this year. But yeah, the first time I popped off it, I was like, oh, oh this is a little bit bigger than I remember, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't bad. It was actually it was a lot of fun. It was it was a lot of fun with those guys. This new crew that's out there, man. They're awesome like they show up like there's like 14 people digging the 110 they bring out like a tracked side by side with a little groomer that they pull behind it to groom the run in mm -hmm. and uh like just to have an army like that building your jump and then having the run in be as smooth as those guys make it like it couldn't have gotten any easier for an old guy to come out and i i haven't ridden the backcountry in a long time uh because it seemed pointless i never got a paycheck out there um i think that free for me freestyle and getting paychecks is a little bit cooler than digging your friends out of avalanches yeah but uh yeah anyways when i went back out there man like uh that crew was like so cool like uh not cool enough to sacrifice this ukraine thing but uh cool enough that i wish they were around back in 2004 5 and 6 that's for sure why do you think you weren't afraid to fall especially considering how big a lot of those jumps were, you know, this is, this is referring back in the day. Right. Well, I'm still not afraid to fall. I don't think, but it's just, I'm just afraid to heal. That's the problem nowadays. Uh, the falling part's fun. Um, now <laughs> ultimately is because we shoveled the roofs when we were kids and we'd shovel all the, all the snow to like one general section of the yard or to the side of the driveway. And then, I also did roof and construction, and so, uh, but as a kid, we shovel the roofs, we jump off the roof into the snow pile, or we jump off the roof onto the trampoline, and you know, see whatever happens after that. Um, so jumping off of roofs has been something we were doing since we were kids, and then also doing roof and construction. Uh, there's been a couple times where maybe I should have been wearing a harness, but I wasn't. And once you know that you're going, you better just jump because if you spend your last moments scrambling trying to stay on the roof you're just going to fall in a messed up position so uh i've fallen off a couple of roofs i've kind of fallen slash jumped off a couple of roofs you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> but you know sometimes sometimes those safety harnesses just get in your way <laughs> so uh 
yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I, I guess mostly just jumping off of roofs, I guess, is why I'm not afraid to fall. That is incredible. So what are your, uh, you know, the dudes that you're working with, what do they say when you, or when they see you just jump off a roof? Well, the boss will say, stop doing that shit, right? <laughs> That's number one, uh, especially, man, if there's a roof where, like, the landscapers have dumped a pile of dirt or topsoil fucking near the roof, man, like, you bet I'm going to jump onto that. Like, it's got a perfect transition. It's soft. It's, you know, fresh dumped. Uh, most of the guys look at, most of the older guys would always look at me like I was an idiot, and then uh, some of the young kids would try to emulate it, and uh, um, no, I mean, it, it all depends on where we're at, too, you know, if you're out in Wasilla on a back cul-de-sac, nobody really cares. Uh, the boss will normally say, you know, if you get hurt, you're fired before you hit the ground, something like that. Or if you jump off, you're fired before you hit the ground. If you're not hurt, you can, you're can you rehired, come back up. Uh, the, <laughs> the, fun, the funniest one was uh, I was rolling out a roll, uh, because they're 33-foot 30, 30, roll of uh, torch down on a 20-foot, 28-foot wide roof. And I'm... Um, talking to the guy on the other end of the roof who's holding the other end of the rolls i'm rolling this out and i got like a small little butt end in my hand you know probably about four or five feet worth in my hand and mm -hmm. next thing i know i'm just looking up and uh this good old boy from arkansas it's like 19 years old sitting over the roof are you all right <laughs> i looked up i'm like shake shake my hands and my feet and everything and i'm like yeah, I am. I'll be right up, you know, and I, luckily I fell right into this, some nice grass. It was a nice lawn, you know, must have been kind of wet out or soft or whatever. And yeah, I just, I walked right backwards off that roof, boom, slammed right onto my back and didn't get hurt. Not even a thing hurt, didn't even hurt later. Uh, so I, 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 I don't know if I should say that I have a higher pain tolerance than other people, but um, I just don't know that always pain just doesn't set in for me the same as some of the people around me i don't know if that's a fair statement but it seems that way by looking at some of the things that i've been through and what happens to other people when they go through them i wonder if it's because of all the tiger bomb it could be it could be the tiger <laughs> bomb could <laughs> I, I i have no idea man maybe i just get real lucky you know so uh, hopefully that luck carries on with me in life do you remember if Sebastian or Giles Landry ever got scared for you and maybe suggested that you go easy or not continue to hit a jump? Uh, well, yeah, I think that there were some phases. There were, there are times when I look at something, I'm a little bit more nervous. And as I'm out riding around, uh, trying to get warmed up, they're over there putting another one foot of lip on the booter to make it uh, video worthy or something mm -hmm. and I think that there's other times when I feel like uh, that I got this or that my body's in a mood where it's gonna be able to handle a good thrashing and uh, I think I definitely think that there's times where they were more nervous than I was and uh, I I can't remember any specific times where we like gotten any arguments about it but i will tell you that i was with sebastian and kevin bennett uh just like a month ago when i went out to turn again and i caught up with warren gage and his crew and uh it was white out it was white it was lightly snowing but there was like a little bit of gray so you can kind of see the ball glowing through the snow and uh 
<clears throat> Kevin had already talked me out of doing a flip closer to the parking lot because things weren't right, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. I asked Sebastian to set his camera up. When I looked over, he like acted like he was going to set it up, but then all of a sudden it wasn't set up, which to me means yeah, this all the parameters weren't there to make it as safe as possible. But I was thinking in my head, like, fucking pussies. Like, fucking, <laughs> I, I told you I got this, you know, but I didn't want to argue with them because if I'm wrong, and I hadn't been in the backcountry for a long time. So, um, you know, on ramps, you get perfectly good hookup. Um, the backcountry, like, your, uh, it just, uh, your depth perception might be different on a whiteout day. You know, there was a lot of things, you know. Um, so, anyway, so I listened to them. But then when we were on the hill, I was like, all right, guys, yeah, we're all going back to the parking lot, da-da-da-da. And then they drove off, and then, like, I circled back. And I was like, all right, come on, Warren, let's hit this. <laughs> you know, yeah. just because I didn't want any more negativity, like, because, like, like i mean i'm, I'm not I, I pride myself on not being one of the deer that gets spooked easy but if you get enough negativity chipping in at you you're going to start guessing second guessing yourself and uh so sometimes it's better not to have people around that care about you so much you know so yeah i would say that there were times where i can't think of any specific um instance that maybe sebastian was trying to bait out of me at this time when you do get or start feeling some of that negativity from from people, do you just have to do the trick? Do you just have to pull the trigger and hit the jump, or do you do you kind of sit back and meditate on meditate on it for a second? Depends on who's talking. Uh, if the twins are talking, I'll listen a little bit more. But ultimately, I just rem remind myself that everybody else out here is a fucking pussy. And if they weren't, they'd be, <laughs> they'd be the one doing what I'm doing, right? But they're fucking holding the fucking camera. And fucking that guy over there is holding the fucking beer. And uh, so, you know, like, I sometimes, you know, when, when Sebastian or Giles make a good valid point, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult. And their opinion is super valid because they've seen a lot, right? So, mm -hmm. um <clears throat> you know uh so yeah it, it means more coming from certain people but ultimately like if i feel it creeping in but i'm just heart set on doing it i a remind myself that everybody else in the world's a pussy and then i also do the mathematical thing right is i've crashed a hundred and whatever backflips right mm -hmm. i've gone to the hospital zero times crashing a, a backcountry flips right um uh even when all my worst injuries they weren't flips. Um, that was, you know, not listening to Corey's advice. Absolutely. I wish that day Corey, you know, I, I should have held his advice in higher regard than I did. Uh, for sure. That's a big regret. Um, but at the same time, in my mind, like I'm used to riding sketchy stuff and, uh, whatever, but I was wrong that day. I'll openly say I was wrong that day. Um, but yeah, so some people I think you need to listen to more than others. Um, but definitely, like, specifically that day with Corey, we had a crowd that was there to see us, and um, uh, that was my thing. It was like, I know that none of the riders wanted to ride in the rain. Um, I know that the, they didn't provide us with very good landing, very much safety deck. Um, everything he said was right. But at the same time, um, if there's a crowd, and the crowd's waiting on us, and we were supposed to do something at 6 o'clock, I'm not going to let a couple raindrops and a small pile of snow stop me. Uh, the only thing I regret 
from that day was maybe not going a little bigger but again it was on the side of a mountain with a step down landing so if i was to overshoot it too much probably the same thing would have happened and, and corey was right they needed to build us a, a bigger pile of snow with a better safety deck so that we didn't have to make that choice of decking or going long mm -hmm. uh so uh yeah now most part most most time i just uh i just talk myself into it but mathematic the mathematical stuff is also something that i just go through my head of especially in the early days when i was 0 for 10 on my first backflip attempts um i would just keep reminding myself that hey you crashed one time and didn't get hurt oh, you crashed two times and didn't get hurt and then <laughs> when i finally landed like one out of 11 you know every time after that was just like well you've crashed 10 of them and not got hurt you know and then up until uh, and there was nobody really was getting seriously injured uh, for a while there until uh, Lusk went down, you know, on a flip on Moto, and then uh, Thacker ended up getting paralyzed, and then finally over in Epping, New Hampshire, when Derail had the ran out of gas on a flip and he flatlined and died, but they resuscitated him on the helicopter, and now he's paralyzed. So. Uh, all the but basically even still i'll still use the mathematical thing today you know uh i'll leave everybody else out of the equation and just tell myself that mathematically i know that this is safe uh and then i just go for it mm -hmm. were there any jumps you're happy you didn't hit no no i've never never uh no <laughs> absolutely not i mean there's there's jumps that uh no, I, no, I can't think of, oh, maybe that one into zero bowl because you got to drive like so far around the other way and you have to like have a long track sometimes to get out that zero. Yeah. The zero bowl dropper has never appealed to me, but mostly just cause, uh, especially back in the day, I don't know if I had the riding skills and the navigational skills to make it out and around and get back without, uh, somebody else down there leading me out, but uh no i i would say that uh more than that there's just so, so oh well no i i wish that uh there's this one jump that they built when i wasn't really riding too much that uh a lot of the guys crushed it was kind of up above bull two kind of coming from the parking lot across the top smashing over a big hill and then kind of landing down coming into bull two uh that thing looked really good, but, uh, not, it just, that was just one of those things where I just wish I would have got a shot like those guys got, um, mm -hmm. uh, El Diablo over in Triangle Bowl. I got messed my knee up pretty good on that one. And that's one that, um, is a big screamer that I know that I could do like a super awesome inverted whip. I I'm guessing that when you go over the top, the long way that I was trying to do it, which is different than the way other people get it it would be super huge man it would look a lot like what the metal militia guys are doing down in california off sand dunes um so that's one that i regret not going back and hitting but it took a lot it takes a long time to dig you got to hit it on the right days but um i definitely think with this new group of guys that are willing to shovel and dig jumps that's probably something that can that uh that i might be able to pull off in the next year or two um now there's more more things there's more like tricks off of certain jumps like uh the dropper into negative one bull that we traditionally call dan's drop 
um it's where the skiers kind of let their sleds down the chute and then they chase it down um i tried flipping into that for the hybrid films movie and uh i just i know that i can do it like i i would lo still love to build a jump you know 20 30 feet back from a cornice flip kind of out over into it and then uh just drop down you uh, basically most of the flip would be done before i actually start dropping down too much but uh the only thing that makes that sketchy is uh you're going to be coming from an in you're going to be kind of inverted and you got to stop the rotation because now you're landing on the side of a face of a mountain so your end angle is only going to be about 90 degrees to begin with so to have your sled cocked at a position that you're going to be able to hit the gas and get your track speed up to 80 before it touches and have your bot your sled in the right position means basically that you're going to be hovering in like a negative position on the way down hoping that there's still fuel coming to your carbs mm -hmm. uh which uh but anyways I, I attempted it on a hybrid movie i think that with a fuel injected uh e-tech or something like that i believe the fuel will continue going to the carbs and it'll be all safe um so yeah that that's something that I, I think that that flipping over the cornice, uh, El Diablo, getting one of those nice photos of, above Tubal and uh, bringing those four tricks I spoke of earlier to a crowd in an arena so that they could see those on a regular basis. Those are kind of the things that chew at me more than anything. And I wonder if you, if the reason they chew at you, you know, you're talking about bringing them to a crowd so that they can see them on a regular basis. Do you think that by bringing them maybe that first time to the crowd, it will motivate other snow machiners to also do them. So then that legacy can carry on those, those tricks will constantly be beyond show. Yeah. Something like that. I got a, I got a show idea of like what I would like to do for a show that um, combines uh, good cinematography like the hybrid guys did um, along with some of our old footage uh, I, I would really like to get a group of six younger dudes and myself that um, so that we could go out and use the videos to teach people about the history of our sport um, use the video and use interviews like hybrid did mm -hmm. to grab the uh, crowd's attention and emotion you know, so that people can understand, like, how dangerous this sport can be at times. Uh, and then uh, perform some of the more top-level tricks that we could do, you know, in front of that crowd. So I, I would like to create a situation where we took basically what I would call ambassadors to the sport around North America. And when everybody left our show the riders didn't actually have to ride for an hour and a half because it's actually boring to watch freestyle for an hour and a half but if you change it up with some live riding some epic video shots some well uh well choreographed interviews and stuff and then you end it with some hero sh hero plays um mm -hmm. i think that traveling around the country and informing people about our sport and uh making it acknowledging the dangers but making it look as safe as possible i think that that's going to be the best way for us to rebuild our sport and that's kind of a longer term goal that i would like to get to um which honestly is 
part of why I was wanting to get the airbags and wanting to, you know, do these tricks. And uh, it's why um, I've spent so much time with uh, younger riders and younger racers trying to, uh, uh, I think, like my Sled Next 17 interview, uh, I want, I would like to produce more Corey Davis's, more uh, Heath Frisbee's, Joe Parsons, Levi the Valley's, people that actually have the skill to ride the snowmobile. Mm -hmm. Then teach them how to do freestyle and jump and be crazy um as opposed to just taking somebody that's shoveled some roofs and put them on a snow machine uh so uh yeah i mean it all it all kind of comes around i've been working for the last 10 years on getting kids into snowmobiling make sure they have an opportunity to hit jumps in a closed course environment you know and work with them on the ramps if they want to come out to the ramps but uh, I think the time is nearing pretty close where it's time to uh, get back on the horse, lead by example, pull together all the resources and, and people that I've met over the years and uh, give it a shot. I don't, I don't see any of the other riders really um, putting forth an effort on the next generation. And uh, it kind of seems like some of the older riders don't care if the sport continues on and this is this is me putting words into people's mouths but this is the feeling that i get is that some of the guys maybe if the sport dies then they're the best that ever was but the way i look at it is if the sport dies nobody's going to remember who we ever were because they're not going to relate to us they're not going to care it's like hula hooping who was the best hula hooper in the 1977 hula hooping championship <laughs> nobody knows but it used to be a sport Right? Did it really? I, I'm sure there were hula hooping competitions all over, right? <laughs> I mean, look it up. There had to be hula hooping competitions. I mean, I just it was like the craze back in the day, you know? And uh, when I first got into riding, I used to actually joke around that um, when I told people that I was going to do backflips or do snowmobile stuff, they looked at me like I told them I was going to be a professional hula hooper because <laughs> it wasn't a sport yet, you know? Kyle and... Kyle Amberst and uh, Ryan Britt and those guys, Frisbee and all those guys in the early day, uh, they were they were doing demos and debuting, mm -hmm. but uh, it was never really a sport for competition for the longest time. Uh, and the first competition, sport competition for freestyle that I was ever a part of is what we created out of Harry Brunholz's track out in Wasilla. And then, uh, and X Games, obviously. But until X Games, I don't know how many real competitions there were what was it like filming for slidenecks and in what ways was it different or similar to filming for turning in hardcore well it was one in the same you just uh it was i would ride with the twins they'd film me some of the footage they kept for themselves some they kept they sold off the slidenecks for the most part um i think alan erickson filmed a little bit with me and then one time they sent like a filmer up um but if, but if, if they sent a filmer up then uh i just go out there and uh bust out as much riding as i could until my clothes ripped so like on a normal day i'd bring two pairs of two pairs of gear to the mountain because we all know the quality of the gear that i was representing at the time <laughs> and so if i wanted to get through a whole day of filming with turning in i bring two sets of gear and uh, you know, the HMK boots weren't like waterproof. So I'd go back <laughs> some days and change my clothes out or always have a backup. But if they sent a filmer up to film with me, I would only bring one set of gear, um, just 
to like let them know that it's not me that's holding our riding day short it's your product mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was to me that was the only difference um i wouldn't i wouldn't sandbag just because they were filming but um i gave it i gave it everything i had every day when i was out there um hero hospital uh h&h &H is i had a mechanic horsepower headquarters was the name of the shop so i had a sticker on my sled it was h or h h and h and uh uh either blaze or the twins or somebody changed that into here or hospital but that really is the way that i rode like i did not get in my truck to go riding that day if i was not willing to go to the hospital um when i was younger my dad told me that no matter what i do in life whether i'm doing something i want to do or digging a hole that i have to dig if i'm doing something right or i'm doing something wrong do it to the best of your ability or don't bother doing it mm -hmm. and so that that mentality plus the sticker on my sled kind of turned into hero or hospital and but and then also when we come to the game late uh every day that i went out to ride i wanted to do something i'd never done before even if it was something simple um and in the early days uh uh sometimes that was just doing a donut three times in the same track because i didn't really know how to ride but usually it was going to be jumping a jump that i hadn't jumped or doing uh some sort of trick off of it that i hadn't done before or something but every day when i went out um if we're on our way back to the parking lot and i realized that i hadn't done something new that i hadn't done before i was gonna ride down the face of turnigan with my hands in the air and just see what what part of the alders i end up in right just just <laughs> something like that like i could not get back in the truck without doing something that i'd never done before yeah uh so uh yeah do any stories come to mind maybe a story of triumph or tragedy in the backcountry, or i guess even a crazy party story uh honestly uh when i think about snow machining back in the day i was 100 percent sober uh, absolutely no drinking there was no sm uh well uh no smoking pot and wasn't drinking didn't go out with the guys um my body seemed to heal faster my brain was quicker uh that was there was like a brief moment there then i got back into smoking weed which i don't think really uh slowed me down or hurt me too much uh i do remember on the on the stoner days uh i'd have to really charge hard out of the parking lot i'd stop at the 110 session that for about a half hour or something before i actually went up to catch up with the crew to kind of shake shake that off which is something you could never do if you were drinking um but no man when i think about my best riding days is just it's it's the opposite of partying uh i didn't want to hang out with the party guys and uh i never got invited on those trips anyways but uh <clears throat> i'm glad i didn't i'm glad i didn't fall into any of that that jive um so yeah but uh and then any good memories i guess from the old days yeah, it's just uh when you're in your 20s and you can afford fortunate if you're fortunate enough to be able to afford to cartwheel sleds down a mountain and you don't have kids yet and your dad owns a commercial contracting company where if it's sunny you can leave at lunch or if you don't want to come to work you don't have to you're never going to lose your job i mean to look back and re at the time i knew i was fortunate 
but man, I didn't realize how fortunate I was. Right. So mm -hmm. just in general, just, uh, just when I, like nowadays, if I go to the mountain, I'm going up to the top of the hill to get reception because I got a phone call or something that needs to be taken care of. I got the wife and kids at home. Uh, if I'm going to spend several hundred dollars on fuel to go riding that day, that's several hundred dollars I don't get to spend on my kid, right? So, like, nowadays, riding makes me feel guilty. Uh, I'm guilty for wasting family income. Uh, it makes me feel, like, more selfish and guilty. Uh, I still enjoy it. Like, once I get to ripping, all that stuff goes out of my head. But on the way to the mountain and when we're just sitting by the jump waiting for that cloud to pass all of a sudden i'm like dude you got more responsible shit to do than sit out here and play with your toys man like what the fuck are you doing here like let's either ride or fucking get back to town and do something responsible uh so like just the the ignorant bliss you know how spoiled i was how few uh responsibilities i had back then you know um yeah i think that that's like that's the more fun part that I have a hard time, hard time like with that nowadays. Like, mm -hmm. if if I break if I break my snowmobile, then that's like less race fees I get to pay for for my kid or other stuff. So, yeah. When do you think that that feeling of responsibility hit you? Sometime after my second kid was born. Uh, like it started, it started hitting a little bit when my daughter was born, but then after my son was born, uh, that's when it really like came to reality that you can't go off and, um, shows were starting to pay less, you know, even the monster jam tour, you do five shows in a weekend. You're only getting 5,500 bucks, but by the time you fly down there, you have a couple sleds down in some different parts of the country. You, you know, there's a lot of expenses, right? So now all of a sudden, $5,500 a weekend to play with your toys. Um, now, that's that's the same amount of money you make when you're working commercial construction and you work in a 60-hour week. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I was, I was saving more money and spending more time at home working construction long hours than I was playing with my toys. So you... You, yeah with the prices go with the with the pay going down and the bills going up uh it was sometime around there when i realized that this wasn't going to last very much longer and uh yeah thinking about that feeling that you get you know when you stomp a new trick up and turn again or you you learn something new or you drove your snow machine into a pile of alders you know without your hands on the on the handlebars do you get that feeling now with your kids and your family mm. no because i don't put my kids at that kind of risk uh no it's not the same because like when we're doing that stuff it's like this is a risk you know what i mean uh and for, for most of the hero hospital stuff you know it's it's a risk and then overcoming risk and Mm -hmm. did my body withstand it whatever um uh a lot of times like you see other guys that used to like black out and flips that were like way better riders than me and so you put yourself in a position and be like yep my mind and body was able to do that you know i'm i'm, I'm good uh mm -hmm. but no I, I try not to put my kids in that much risk um but no i mean there's there's things uh well i think that most 
most of it is like when my kids impress me like being like little adults or like when uh when most of honestly most importantly is when when i see my kids helping out other kids unprovoked when they don't know that we're watching them and uh and they're getting along hugging being the good kids that you want them to be that's the closest i get or if uh <clears throat> they're in a social setting and somebody isn't acting right and they can defuse it and make everybody act right uh without causing problems uh, whenever they show maturity whenever they look out for other people when when they're looking out for each other and when they show maturity in social situations that's when i'm like that's my kid you know what i mean that's when like you feel good about it um mm -hmm. uh i get i don't like it when uh i definitely don't like it when my kids are scared to stick up for others because they're afraid they're gonna get hurt or they are afraid that they're gonna lose a friend um, but i also don't like it when they go too far and like if they're gonna stick up for somebody but they do it in the wrong manner that creates more problems um so uh it's kind of a double-edged sword but when they when they do it just right i'm like that's perfect that's that's it right there yeah it must be kind of this overwhelming feeling like you're doing your job as a good father and trying to teach them when, when you know sometimes it's not necessary to stick your nose in other people's business sometimes people need to be stood up for you know, uh, recognizing the difference, you know, uh, and, uh, but again, I think that just comes from the fact that I believe all people are supposed to, um, stand up for the vulnerable and the weak and, uh, protect those that can't protect themselves. Um, so I think that maybe that's where more of that comes in. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I'm all, I always try to help help out a lot of other people um you know with the whether it's snowcross club or volunteering with veterans when i was never a veteran or uh whatever i see you know um i've <laughs> yeah there's, there's been a few instances you know what I mean, where i just randomly roll up on people that i don't think are acting right and uh the the times where uh i i went too far sometimes create more problems for myself you know what i mean so i don't want to see my kids do that kind of thing mm -hmm. but i definitely definitely don't like seeing anybody turn their back on somebody's in need you know so yeah what do you think was the highest point in your early snow machining career man that's hard to say dude yeah i don't think there was like any i mean uh i i don't know man just just having fun really like none of it seems like in hindsight like none of it seems like that awesome uh when you go to x games there's such a bunch of pressure and bs and stuff uh when you win your gold medal because everybody else crashes you're not like it's whatever you know like uh we almost knew how that was going to end before the competition started um I mean, it's just the highest points is just having fun. The days when you can, sometimes it shows, sometimes it's in the mountains. But the, when you're smiling and having fun, those are the funner, those are the best days. Mm -hmm. Of course, getting the gold medal and, and whatever, it's awesome for the resume. It's awesome to say that 
you got it. Um, but it wasn't my funnest day of riding. Uh, it's a bunch of bullshit, really. Fucking borrowing sleds and dealing with TV timeouts and being cold and having sponsors and there. And it's just a lot of pressure and bullshit for playing with your toys. <laughs> uh, the, 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 best, the best days, man, are just the days when you're smiling. It could be at the house ramping. It could, uh, like, uh, some of my best days, dude, when my daughter was younger and she would come out and tell me what tricks she wanted me to do on the ramp, right? And uh, she would, she thought she was making tricks up. She would describe to me what she wanted me to do. And, uh, and then one day she asked me to do a trick. This is another one that kind of eats at me is when I was younger, I was super nimble. I used to be able to do bar hops and like do them, like rotate them so far back that my, the back of my head would touch the gas cap. And I was like, God, man, if you just, had some balls you let go and then go back into a double grab so it'd be a bar hop back somersault to a double grab and uh one day when she was like five or something she's like dad do this and i was like oh you got my kryptonite little lady i was like that's <laughs> that's one freestyle trick that i've never done haven't been able to do um that i i need that's actually something i need to get back on so I, yeah like i i would say like um having my daughter call my tricks was cool and then it got to the point where i was in sweden one time and uh i kind of gotten hurt and so i was only going to use a certain part of the course and so i showed the fan that this guy let me borrow his sled and he was out there with his friends and so i i said you know if you want me to do like a seat grab trick variation you know put your hands up like superman if you want me to do a bar trick hold your hands out like a t you know like your body's a t if you want me to flip you know hold your fingers like kind of rotate them backwards or whatever and so i had the crowd i would come out and i would just drive by the crowd and they would instantly start calling my tricks and no no speed runs no warm-ups i would just sit on this one ramp on the course next to the crowd and let them call my tricks i just circled that one ramp with my injured knee and because uh, i didn't want to ride the rest of the snow course and uh I made it to the mains because of crowd participation. But uh, anyways, those are the funnest days. You know, one day, uh, well, I had to travel all the way from Alaska to you know, near Montreal, Canada. So Valcourt, Canada, I think is where we were riding. A long, long time. And the people at Customs really liked me. So they, they made sure they went through every layer of my gear. And they, and they lectured me for a long time. So I'm, I'm flying all, all day and night. I get to Canada. I get hung up in Customs uh and uh so finally i get out of there and we got to drive straight to valcourt full stick and i show up and everybody else is already geared up and i'm on a borrowed sled with some fat jets in it and blaze is the announcer and uh he has the whole crowd standing up normally you just do a straight air you say they introduce your name you do a straight air you wave to the crowd and you get through your intros Mm -hmm. But not this day. Blaze had the whole crowd standing up doing the backflip signal. And <laughs> this sled would not clear out. It had 300 main jets in it. I normally ride with like 240s in it. And uh, so I'm just racing around this track trying to get this sled hot, hot enough to clear out. And uh, um, I ended up, I ended up hucking the flip. It ended up being boggy. I ended up rotate, uh, under rotating a little bit. Uh, got a little shook up didn't really get hurt or nothing uh but those days man those like that was a fun day like uh that that's one that i remember because uh nobody else uh, thacker wouldn't have done that to me 
Blaze probably would have never done that to anybody else, but me and Blaze have kind of a, always had a semi-healthy competitive rivalry, you know? We, mm -hmm. We've never not liked each other completely, but uh, we definitely enjoyed one-upping each other. <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. so that day, that day was super cool. That's one that sticks out in my mind because there's nobody else in the world would have tried to bait me into hurting myself like Blaze did that day. And uh, the crowd wanted it. We did it. Everybody was happy. And, you know, I, honestly, I think people like wrecks. And so if you can give somebody a live wreck and then get back up and still do the whole show, that's just a win all the way around. So, um, so for, yeah, but anytime you could ride with a smile on your face, you know, if that same situation, I didn't have a smile on my face that day and I didn't have fun that day, I'd probably still be mad at Blaze about it to this day. Oh, Blaze, you know, you baited me into something, whatever. But uh, but as long as you're riding with a smile on your face, it doesn't matter. You know, it just it does. It's the funnest days. And so, like, for now, like when when I'm out riding, it's just I just got to remember, like, yeah, I'm maybe I should be somewhere else. Maybe I shouldn't be spending the money on riding. Maybe I should be spending it on something else, like my kids. But hey, if we're here. We're not going to dwell on that. We're just going to smile. We're going to have fun. And we're going to ride. What would you say if one of your kids wanted to hit 100-foot jumps on a snow machine and turning and pass? But don't talk about it, pussy. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> Shut the fuck up and hit it. What, do you need me to build the jump? What the fuck? Why are you talking about it? Why don't you just fucking do it? That's what I would... I mean. So my daughter... And so we had this first group of kids... Um, uh, one of these little Asian dudes, Lagarda, fucking, what was his name? Uh, his dad's name is Johnny. I can't remember the kid's name. Jameson or Julian, one of those two. Anyways, so this kid was like 12. My daughter was 10. There's quite a few kids in that same age range. And this kid, Julian, he was bad to the bone. We'd uh, we'd make these sleds. We'd detune them. So, like, we'd take a 600 RS, right? And we'd flash the brain and change the clutching so it engages low and so that it revs out at, like, 5,000 RPM. I can't remember what, what they're actually, the real numbers are, but we'd have one set up for 300 CC. And first off, you put a half pull throttle block on there so they couldn't even pull the carbs up all the way. And then, uh, so that would make it like a 500. Then we had a setup for 400 and a setup for 300. And I would have these marks next to the run in so the kids would know, depending on what sled they're on, where they had to pin it from. And they could hit the ramp at 45 feet. Mm -hmm. So they're hitting the same ramps that we run at X Games. And these kids, they were so small that we would have to cut running boards off of other snowmobiles. And then we would mount them like higher running boards, running board risers. So we'd use little vertical tube columns, you know, to support it. And then we'd like mm -hmm. uh, bolt them to the tunnel. And uh, so we've got all these little kids out there that too small for the snowmobiles, you know. <laughs> and uh, we've done yeah. everything we can to make it right <laughs> for them. And uh, so anyways, uh, that's it was a pretty cool time, but then uh, in a short succession, uh, my daughter overjumped and went long one day and uh, <clears throat> landed like there's a little bomb hole. And she landed in the uphill of the bomb hole, and with her legs not being that long, uh, there wasn't much suspension for her. She racked her spine and quickly probably thought of Thacker and DRL and all those guys, and she hung it up. And then uh, Julian. Uh, ended up breaking his leg like we were going to do a show uh, here in town at the Sullivan uh, when the Monster Jam guys came up and uh, he ended up breaking his leg on a dirt bike and uh, you know so then pretty much when all the other kids saw uh, those kids get broke off I think it quickly tumbled uh, that that whole group kind of walked away from it but anyways uh, so I guess what my point is is I've 
fully supportive of my kids hucking and doing whatever they want. But um, I don't think that's what my kids want to do. <laughs> they, <laughs> uh, but, I, you know, I'm, I don't know. They, they don't have it, but, you know, maybe at 10 years old, I didn't want to do that either. I don't know. Uh, so hope maybe if at 20 years old they want to do it, uh, I'd be fully supportive of it, you know. Um, and again, that's, I mean, we have more safety equipment nowadays. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wish my kids w would want to do it. But if they don't, that's not a problem. But if they do, uh, like, so back to your original question is I don't want to hear them talk about it. Just fucking go out there and do it. Like, because there's a lot of freestyle people that talk, talk, talk ride a little bit and then stop and watch the footage and then post it on Instagram and then talk about it some more. And that is just, I will, I'll, I'll I will sell all their sleds before they ride like that. Like, <laughs> that's not going to happen. <laughs> so, so yeah, if my kids want to do it, don't talk about it, just do it. But if you don't want to do it, that's fine. You know, that's cool. Right on, dude. You know, <laughs> that does it for my questions, Dane. Um, Man, it was, it was really a blast chatting with you today. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 